0: I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. In pre-COVID-19 days, and what now feels like a lifetime ago, but that in reality wasn't that terribly long ago, we began recording episodes for our third season of this podcast, which we planned to launch in late March. But life had other plans, and instead, we pivoted to bring you a special series of COVID-19-focused podcast episodes. COVID-19 is, of course, far from over, and we will continue to address it as we record with guests going forward. But in some ways, those first few episodes recorded prior to COVID-19 are even more relevant now. This is especially true with our guest for this first episode of Season 3 of We Can Be artist Mikhail Chakuma Owuna. He has described himself as a, quote, queer Nigerian-Swedish-American photographer, Fulbright scholar, and engineer who imagines new universes and realities for marginalized communities around the globe. Infinite Essence, Mikhail's exhibition of large-scale photographs presenting glittering black bodies as gorgeously ethereal universes, has moved audiences at every stop. His recent book, Limitless Africans, featuring portraits of 50 LGBTQ individuals of African descent who are thriving around the world, is a hit that has garnered rave reviews from National Public Radio, Vice Media, The New York Times, and many others. And in the past few months, as the Black Lives Matter movement has turned into a powerful and visible global movement, Mikhail's art has taken on an even more profound significance. This is my conversation with Mikhail Chukuma Ouna. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I was just sharing with you that I've been spending some time looking at your art, and it's stunning, and it's beautiful, and you have a lot coming together right now. Your book, Limitless Africans, is, I think, nearly sold out on its first printing, and your really beautiful show, Infinite Essences, is, I mean, I just think it's stunning. It's not just me, apparently. <laughs> it's getting rave reviews everywhere. And I want to start off in a place I never really do with uh, these interviews and ask you how you're feeling right now.
1: Oh, it's a great question. I'm really trying to soak in the moment mm-hmm. and to enjoy as much as possible You know, where I am. Like, I actually just got back a few days ago from giving a TEDx talk. That was a really big moment of actually getting to look back upon the last few years and think about, you know, where I was, particularly as a teenager, and where I've arrived to. Mm -hmm. And so I think in that space of reflection, that's really where I'm allowing myself to. Enjoy that, then allow myself to launch myself into the next series of projects.
0: A TEDx talk typically about eighteen minutes or so. Is that right?
1: What was your arc for that? I'm it was exactly eighteen minutes. Yeah. You know, you know the format very well. The title was "Transcending the Body," hmm. and so I started with thinking about how, for me, when I was Growing up, coming out in the early two thousands on MySpace, right. <laughs> and it was really an isolating space for me. I was mm-hmm. in boarding school at the time, and there really wasn't much representation of Black LGBTQ people in the media. weren't any other Black LGBTQ people at my school, and so in my TEDx, I talk about how I went from that space of isolation to I found my escape in magic. <laughs> Whenever I was feeling lonely, isolated, or hurt in some way, I would throw myself into worlds of magic. Be they fantasy novels like Harry Potter, anime TV shows like Dragon Ball Z or Sailor Moon, or, especially in high school, video games. Video games became worlds of magic that I would jettison myself into filled with light and love, where everybody carried magic in the very fiber of their beings. When I was playing Final Fantasy, I felt like I could not only escape into these worlds, but that I was one of the magical beings on screen. And then when I found a camera when I was in college, that that was a moment where I was given a tool that I could then create these magical worlds where black and LGBTQ people could be really celebrated.
0: I love the beautiful convergence that you paint there of the situation that you found yourself in and the ability to find yourself actually in a magical landscape. Let's explore
1: that for a minute. Who were you at 15 and what were you wrestling with? Yeah. So at 15, that was when I was in boarding school. So I was born in Pittsburgh and then I grew up in Pittsburgh until I went to boarding school. And at the time I was between a lot of cultures, right? Being Nigerian, but growing up in the U S having part Swedish heritage, but like, you know, all of these different things being in Pittsburgh. And I was trying to figure out how I can place all of these identities in addition to being queer Mm. in the same body, because there wasn't really any roadmap. And I was being told that it was not possible. Like, you're not allowed to be all of these things at right. the same time, particularly right. being LGBTQ. And so at 15, that's really the space that I was in, was trying to believe, trying to find a breakthrough and trying to find a space of belonging.
0: You actually had this experience of having an attempt made to take the gay away. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that. how old were you when that happened? 18 years old. Okay. You get Taken to Nigeria yeah. to have a rite performed to change you.
1: Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so when I was in high school, so like my family also found out about my sexuality at the time through MySpace because okay. I come out on MySpace. Yeah. And so some of my family would It's have not been, exactly a private place. <laughs> you know, not <laughs> yeah, yeah. MySpace, but not my own space. Right, it's, right. It's, right, it's right, for the world right, also. Um, right. Yeah, and so some of my family members in Nigeria found out and they told me that, you know, this is not of our culture that it's un-African and you cannot be both Nigerian yeah. and LGBTQ. There was kind of a few years where there was kind of like a detente, if you will. There wasn't really any action moving. But then when I was 18, they found out that I was still gay because one of my friends had written me a letter or something like that and was like, oh yeah, I'm excited for us to go to college and have boyfriends. I'm like, okay, girl. But um, <laughs> they found out, they're like, okay, this is still an issue. Yeah. And so we were already going back to Nigeria pretty frequently at the time but that trip was then the time where it's like, okay this has not gone away right let's get into it i did not know it was going to happen but during the trip there was a a series of religious ceremonies the first one was one where there was a series of priests praying in a circle around me Mm -hmm. and like speaking in tongues slamming me with bibles the whole works and that went on for a few hours and then the next ones were with the traditional healer so the traditional healer then this was a few days later, would then bring me into a bath and tell me to take off all my clothes. i leave my boxers on and then poured this oil over me that stung my body from head to toe hmm. and then asked me for my boxers afterwards to destroy it because the idea was that the devil that were trying to wipe out of me by putting that stinging oil all over my body would then cling to anything. So they took my boxers and then destroyed them. It was really a traumatic, deeply traumatic experience that – really made me feel like I'd already struggled with feeling like I couldn't have these identities in the same right. body. And that was when I was really like, wait, no, I really cannot, <laughs> I'm not allowed to. And yeah. so it was from there that I then had to try to reassemble the pieces I am, yeah. How was that not terrifying for you? Yeah, it was very terrifying. The way at the time that I tried to navigate and understand the experience was to just like say like, you know. God, if this is not what I meant to be, yeah. please just take it, because yeah. it's too much. It's hard. This is this is too much, and so it's kind of like almost like a prayer, also. You know, it's yeah. like you know, if this is not my path, like put me on the right path. And I mean, clearly, I'm still gay. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly did, the it, path was already it decided. didn't take as they say. <laughs>
0: You know, I'm thinking about a young man, a teen, um, having the courage to come out at 15, uh, given I think the even higher hurdles around that, Mm -hmm. given your background. How did you come
1: to that courage, or were you even thinking of it in terms of courage, and how did you persist? So I think for me, that journey has kind of two different phases. I think the first one is like the coming out on quote-unquote MySpace, right? Right. Like, right? That public declaration. Yeah. At that point, I spent so many years denying that I was gay to myself. Yeah. You know, I also grew up Catholic. There's, there's a lot of layers. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't admit to myself that I was gay until I think five months before I came out. At that point, when I admitted it to myself, I was like... I mean, come on, let's just do this, you know, but I was still nervous. I think for me, I still believed somehow that I could be publicly out without my family members finding out, even though. That's clearly so, a 15-year-old way of thinking. Right. It definitely did feel like a big courageous moment mm-hmm. in the context where I was being in boarding school. It was very conservative. But I didn't think I realized where it would push me. Mm. Then the next phase came after the ceremonies. It was then like a several-year period. This was during college. Kind of reckoning with that level of trauma. Can, do, I, do I belong? Mm-hmm. And in what ways can I belong for myself It literally took me the next four years. It wasn't really until the end of college. starting to piece that back together again.
0: What amazes me is how you kept your act together during that Mm. whole process, because you're like number one in your class at your boarding school. You go to Middlebury College, and you do a summer in Oxford. (laughs) This is not the hallmark of somebody who's falling apart in a tormented life, and yet you're
1: clearly struggling. How did you manage that? I think everybody has different coping mechanisms. My coping mechanism was all of these experiences are happening to me. The one thing I can control is school. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm good at school. Like, yeah. And then I would also be the magic, you know. In the free time, it would be these worlds of magic. So it's kind of that way of trying to find some semblance of control within an environment that, outside of that, was chaotic.
0: You know, what's interesting is that you found solace in magic, even as these people and traditions around you were trying to work their own magic on you. (laughs) You know, it's uh, it's an interesting contrast.
1: Yeah, it was. I, I think I saw it as very different. I saw like Final Fantasy and Harry Potter and stuff. I saw that as being light, right. the embodiment of light, right And which was the opposite of what I was seeing mm. in those ceremonies. And so I feel like for me, I was always drawn to light and how light can be a space of escape and um, healing.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue into infinite essences. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit about that. You show black bodies in this incredible light Mm -hmm. painted to be glowing ethereal universes. And it's, to me, one of the most original reinventions of the human form I've seen. Thank you. For listeners who haven't seen it, can you describe it much better in your words than in mine?
1: In the portraits, I think if people imagine, for example, seeing a body adorned with stars. I was seeing so many images in the media of black people being shot and killed, and so I wanted to think about how can I reimagine the black body as a space of magic and light? Mm. And so the approach that I use is kind of one that kind of fuses engineering and art. Because I studied engineering in college, I think I really imbibed the idea of the scientific method. I think it was kind of just like, okay, we are going through years of this drilling. And even with my photographic process now, I start with a question. And I pose visual hypotheses on how to address it. And so here, the question was, how do I reimagine the black body as a space of magic? You know, it's a really mm. difficult question. There was this image from Final Fantasy that really touched me in high school mm. when I was struggling with my sexuality. Mm. And there was like this creature that was kind of just charging all of these sparkles in, in their hands. watched it all the time when I was a teenager. I went back to that clip and I was watching it, watching it, watching it, watching it. And then a light bulb went off. It was like, those sparkles, put those sparkles on the body. And that's what the magic is. And so then I started thinking about, okay, how do I do that? And I was like, okay, well, glow in the dark paints. And I kind of started doing glow in the dark paints. And I was like, fluorescent? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> People do that go-go dancing parties, yeah. you know, whatever, like, you know, go-go. Yeah. And then I'm learning about, okay, how I could use an ultraviolet light to illuminate these paints so I could tell this new story about the black body. So it was kind of like this iterative method. Right. Once I figured out the methodology, then it's like, okay, how do I do the paint? Okay, how do I know how to do the paint? Okay, what equipment do I need to go from doing portraits to then doing bodies? So it was like a two-year arc of experimentation. There's
0: so much in the imagery for me as a viewer— where I can see you, as an artist, reclaiming your physicality, the beauty of the experience that you had, uh, the beauty of the black body in American culture and global culture, the universality of human experience, I could go on, but what was specifically driving you as you were
1: creating this? I was really trying to heal my relationship with my body as a black person. You know, I I think kind of just seeing that psychic barrage Mm -hmm. of just seeing so many images of black people just falling, falling, falling. That really affects you, you know, when there's particularly when there's so limited representation of black people, particularly black LGBTQ people. So for me, there's also this aspect of time travel mm-hmm. dimensions shifting. Right. And so thinking about that within this dimension, what we have, the human eye can only see a really small band of all wavelengths of light. Right. That's what's visible to the human eye. If I transcend what's visible to the human eye... All of these maybe experience the pain that I've had. What is that world of magic that I can escape into? What is that world of magic that's already right here that's inside of me, mm. that maybe people are putting people are projecting all of these ideas onto my body. But what is my body actually? Mm. How can I heal that relationship and connect myself to something that's far greater than what these experiences are? That the difficult experiences. It's so
0: beautiful. There's also an influence from your Igbo culture yeah. in this, and, but even in the name. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so it has been such a journey, particularly going from those ceremonies, etc., to relearning the real history of my community, my Igbo Nigerian community, and particularly going to the pre-colonial ideas around what our, spirit, our spiritual systems were. Mm-hmm. And so the title Infinite Essence comes from a quote by Chinua Achebe, the writer of Things Fall Apart. And he was thinking about the Igbo ideas of the soul or the spirit. And so in Igbo cosmology, we believe that just as we're here together today and speaking to each other, and then I guess the listeners are there in their respective spots, you know, just as we're all here, our spirits simultaneously are convening with one another on the Mm -hmm. spiritual plane. And we call that our chi, our spirit guide. And that each of our chis are one ray of the infinite essence of the sun. I was really struck by that, how We're all connected to something that's like far greater and deeper than what meets the eye. Mm. And I wanted to really kind of reify that within the work because there is that space of dimension traveling, you know, where the models, when you see them in the visible spectrum, you know, you can't really even see the paints. But then when the lights go off and then the flash illuminates them for a fraction of a second, you almost like you teleport, you see this magical being emerge and then disappear. Um, And I think that of kind of getting that reflection of the chi, of the spirit, that's unconnected to. Oh, my God, that's gorgeous.
0: It's a gorgeous concept just in general for trying to understand our commonality. But I also love the ephemeral nature of that. As I understand it, the process of being photographed was fairly emotional for some of your models.
1: Yeah, I think one of the quotes that really struck with me was that one of the models, MM, after I did their photo shoot, told me that they broke down in tears looking at the pictures mm-hmm. and they said their whole life they dreamed of you know like connecting themselves to the stars something that's a greater experience and that this is beyond their wildest dreams and they also said that you know, every black person deserves to see themselves in this way and i really was struck by that you know this idea that if we can internally transform the ways in which we relate to our own bodies how can that transform the world around us mm.
0: Let's talk about Limitless Africans Mm -hmm. for a moment. Beautiful hardbound book that chronicles the stories of 50 plus LGBTQ folks who have African heritage. It's just beautifully rendered. Would you tell us a little bit about what the idea was behind this and how you went about realizing it?
1: You know, so after college, I'd done a lot of struggling through college. I'd found a camera, but I was using the camera just in different ways, just trying to be outlets for my emotions. I, I went to Asia, I lived in Asia for a year, and when I came back from Asia, I wanted to return to the core of my queer African experience that had really launched me into photography in the first place. And so I started brainstorming the idea for doing a documentary series on LGBTQ African immigrants. Didn't really know if that was possible. and. I saw the work of Znelli Moholy, who's a black lesbian South African photographer, who was being um, shown at the Carnegie Museum in 2013 when I came back from Asia, from Taiwan. And when I saw her images, it was all these portraits of black lesbian South Africa at the Carnegie, I was 23 at the point, and I had never seen an image of an LGBT African person in my whole life. And so I talk about that lack of representation. So I'm going through all these experiences. Mm. I'm being told that LGBT African people don't exist. I don't really know anybody else, (laughs) and there are no images. There's no documentation, until I saw those portraits. And so I was like, wow, you know, like this is possible. Mm. And so that really inspired me to start thinking about how could I connect the dots to my own experience in diaspora. I, I spent the next six years. I also had a full time job for most of it, but I was kind of working simultaneously doing this documentary series and. Connecting to LGBT African immigrants in North America and Europe and trying to figure out how did they navigate this idea that is un-African to be LGBTQ? I was looking for 50 different answers for how I, too, could be queer, Nigerian, mm. and, mm. and a, whole, a whole person. So I was doing interviews. I was doing portraits that were showing them kind of combining these identities right. together. And then it was released as a photo book on a national coming out day in 2019. It was kind of this... I do all this dramatic artsy stuff, but I came out on MySpace <laughs> yeah. National Coming Out Day 2005. So oh, I was wow. doing that as a way to kind of call back to that same moment right. and be like, wait, you know, now look, we've not only survived and grown and flour- uh-huh. flourished in different ways, but now we've documented the, the stories of this community for, for the world to see. Hey, everyone. It's Mikael. And so... Here I am at the end of this time here in Europe. I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who made this possible. To all of the black queer femme people who have come through again and again when things were going crazy. That family and community has meant so much in order to sustain me. And so I'm super excited to have finished up shooting here. I'm just amazed amazed, 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 and so inspired by everybody. And so I'm super excited to start sharing more and more of the work. And yeah, lots of big things coming. So wait and check it out. Thank you again, everybody.
0: And to put all of this together, as I understand it, you literally did the equivalent of our sending a message out into the universe, hoping for something to come back. Right? I mean, you, <laughs> you, you, you. Put, <laughs> so you put out an appeal saying, "Is there anybody out there like me?" <laughs> Were you amazed by the response that
1: came back? Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, you're absolutely correct. It's I, like there are <laughs> aliens. They exist. <laughs> yes. Right. It's like the SETI SETI project uh, right, for LGBT right, Africans. Right, right. When I was starting to think about doing the project and launching into it i put out a call online and dozens of people reached out to me dozens i was like wait where have you people been like (laughs) i've been here struggling for years i put online lgbt africans and suddenly there are dozens of people and so i got before 40 preliminary interviews where i just off the record just talking to people trying to see what were the commonalities between their experiences and from there is how I kind of heard that everybody had heard that same idea that it was un-African to be LGBTQ. Yeah. So that would became really the linchpin around which the whole project centered. It's like, okay, how do I debunk that myth? visually and with narratives. This is incredible, and I'm so blessed to have been part of this project with you. And, Mikael, you are a blessing to the world, and you are you are continuously showing us that our ancestors' knowledge is always with us in the vessels that we carry today. You're amazing. Thank you, love. Give us a couple of um, examples from the book of people that you that you covered. One of the images, I think, that are most known from the project is one. It was of Brian, a queer Rwandan person in Montreal, Canada. Brian has a beard and has wearing red lipstick with like a like a really mm-hmm. brightly colored head wrap, you know, kind of really contorting our ideas of gender and sexuality. Brian said that my Africa is one that is intrinsically loving, you know, and so kind of thinking about what the base of, actually, the actual root of African values are. You know, mm-hmm. it's actually ones of, like, acceptance and diversity because there are thousands of cultures, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that this is really a modern distortion of who we are. So we have to try to remember who we actually are. I, the others that in the book that really struck me were a lot of people talked about the history of colonization in terms of shifting perspectives within African communities. Now, so now that African communities are the ones that are saying, LGBT identities don't exist. They're like, this is something that comes from the West. But actually looking, who actually read the history and know that we have all of these LGBT African historical figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, And so they make some references to that in the book as well, um, which Carol, who is in Trinidad and Tobago, Wandia, who is in Hamburg, and a few others, make some really good references. And also the book starts with a really amazing introduction by Rafayat Liu, who is a Nigerian lesbian writer, who also kind of talks about that history.
0: So there's an image in the book of four folks sitting in the snow in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and one of them has snowflakes on their eyelashes and it's stunningly beautiful. Do you as an artist know that in the moment? Are you going for that or does it just come out in the process?
1: Yeah. So I think what I've learned with my process is to really lean into play Mm -hmm. and allowing myself to have fun as much as possible. So before that shoot, there was a lot of issues. The plan was not for there to be a blizzard. (laughs) The blizzard hit right when I got to New York because I traveled to New York and I was like, "Okay, people were so delayed. The trains were all a mess. (sighs) Oh, uh, it was a disaster. And so I'm taking the <laughs> pictures, and half the pictures, the, the focus is going in and out. I was like, oh my god, like what's happening? Like I was uh. like, and we, because it was so cold, that we only had like 15 minutes. And so I was kind of like, okay, let me just, let's just play, let's have fun. And the reason that one of them has their eye closed is that I told them I was like, okay, everybody's crouched by the brownstone, right. and they were like, no, we're not gonna gonna get ourselves wet. And then one of them slipped. And that's how her eyes are ah. closed because she slipped and another person sat down next to them. So it was kind of this space of experimentation and really being open to allowing people to be who they want to be. I think that's what I like to do in my shoots is allow people to be as big as they want to be. Because particularly as, like, black people, we can try to shrink ourselves in public spaces. And so I want them to just be able to, like, be free. I think that's what comes across in, that Im- in the images is that experience of being free and allowing, your- allowing yourself to be as large as you've always dreamed of being.
0: What you just said makes me think of something that I hear a lot about art that also addresses issues of identity. Mm. That... There's this debate about, is that art for me to celebrate my identity and and Mm. people like me, or is this art to wake up others to the fact that there are other folks and different experiences and ways of being in the world? And when you think about your art, which side of that equation are you on, or do you even accept that as a distinction?
1: I think for me, the one thing that I think a lot about is more so just centering my own journey as much as possible. Yeah. Because I've realized that as an artist, I can't control <laughs> how other people consume my work. Right. like, And I also can't get so fixated on trying to do that. So I think one thing some people are like, oh, are you trying to wake up straight African people who are homophobic? Or are you trying to make right. racist white people see black people? I'm just like, I can't control that. But what I can control is that experience that I'm having in my body
0: yeah.
1: and the experiences that I'm having with the models and just trying to make a space of freedom as much as possible with between us. And whatever that means to other people, have at, have it. at it. And I, I can put out my artist statement. I can do all these different things. But if people want to some, see something else in the work that's their prerogative to do. Like, you know, we're human beings. We have agency. So I just want to have fun making my work. Right. And I think that nine out of 10 times, because I'm having fun, people can see it in the images or feel it. In totally can
0: feel it in the images. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it just comes across that you're having fun and that you're loving what you're doing. That's an accomplishment in itself. So you've described your work as in some ways radical. Can you uh, Oh, have explain? I? Yeah.
1: I? When did I say that? I hope I didn't say that somewhere. Interesting. Is it you perceive it as radical in any way? I feel like there's two answers to the question. Is my work radical? The people have different ideas of what radical is. So I think that's kind of a whole other thing to unpack. Yeah. If I think about the word radical as meaning from the root, yeah, you know, kind of pulling things up from the root. And I think particularly as I push to uproot and to challenge our ideas of what these bodies that we have are i think that is a radical act inspiring somebody who is marginalized to love themselves i think that's radical you know because i think when you grow up in a society that tells you that you can't be who you are and you suddenly seem to see an image or you have an experience with like work that tells you that like i belong that's radical. I think that's really radical. Is
0: there anything different about doing this work right now at this point in American history, given the political environment that we're operating in today, that feels different for you from where you were when you were you
1: started out? You know, before Trump was elected, I was struggling with my sexuality and my African identities. But when I started doing the work and I was kind of pitching it to people— In America, people didn't really care as much, to be honest, about African LGBT immigrants. So, a lot of the work and early exhibitions that I did were in Canada and in Europe because there, there's much more of an acknowledgement of African immigrants and there's more of a space for that. But after Trump was elected, then in America, things started moving a bit more. People were like, oh, and immigrants, LGBT African immigrants. What is this? Oh, now we're so interested. I'm just like, oh, okay, now our stories are important. I thought my story was important before. So I yeah. think maybe what it has done is it's made people wake up in different ways mm-hmm. to what has already been going on. Mm-hmm. It makes me sometimes question how sincere the duration of it will be. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing that you know people are engaging with my work right now, and I love that. I wonder 10 years from now what that looks like in terms of, like, are they still thinking about what these narratives mean? Right. You know, because there will still be LGBT African immigrants. But are we thinking about them? Do those stories matter anymore? So I'm really glad. But I think it shows that there's continuing work to do. Do
0: do you get the sense that there is a generational shift happening, though, that— there's a new generation coming of age that for whom it will be more natural to have those narratives be transparent and open.
1: It's so funny because with my friends now, because we're all around 30 and da, 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 we're all like, oh, these young people, <laughs> these 20 year olds, what are they talking about? <laughs> oh, anyway, I feel like there is a generational shift happening. Gosh, I'm going to get hit for this. I think the thing that I am challenged by, for example, when I talk to my younger cousins is the depth I think there is awareness about a bunch of different issues, mm-hmm. but I don't think people have dug into the research. Mm-hmm. You know, people might know non-binary identity. They might know a lot of buzzwords, but I don't think people have necessarily – are not reading enough, are not digging into the research. Mm-hmm. You know, And I feel like I really want to encourage people beyond just shifting to know that – different people exist right okay that's a great first step yeah. but now let's really engage with the richness of who they are right i think there's that other work that needs to be done i do think there's a shift happening and i think the level of representation that's being put out right now is a really important part of that shift having these reference points can only do something can you only, can only do good as people continue growing and shifting you've gone
0: through the hard process of revealing yourself to yourself into the world mm. you've owned that, you've now helped translate it into experience for other people. Where do you see yourself on your journey? And I'm curious, Mm. not just about
1: you, but also where your family is now. My family has come a a super long way. I think the thing that was really surprising was when I was working on the Limitless Africans project, I did two series of crowdfunding for it, and I raised $14,000 for the project to support it. And I was just seeing all of these aunts and uncles donating Huh. cousins donating they were along for the they were following and they're along for the journey too i think that shows the power of art to transform not only our lives but those of the people around us so i think that really shocked me and has um really been emblematic of how much progress has been made with my maternal side paternal side that whole other thing. So, um, but you know. So you're halfway there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even trying to work on the other side. You know what I'm yeah. saying? You can't control something uh, right, you can't control. Right, right, right. Can't control that. <laughs> can't control it. So, yeah.
0: And then, how about for you personally,
1: where do you think you are on this journey? I feel like I'm on the verge of something really big. Mm. I don't know what that means. I don't know where that goes. But I'm, what I'm trying to do is just be as present as possible in the mm-hmm. moment. Uh, my grandmother actually passed away f- four days ago, or, uh, the last Friday, a few hours before I had my TED talk, my TEDx talk. I think what I remembered in terms of thinking about mortality is the power of being here, mm-hmm. just being present and Allowing those experiences that we have to flow through and in us. And so I think that's what I'm excited about. You know, I know that there's a lot happening, but I'm just really challenging myself just to be as present as possible.
0: Oh, thank you for that. The name of our program is We Can Be, and it's kind of an incomplete sentence. <laughs> I'm, I'd love for you to
1: complete it for us. We can be what? We can be free. We can Tony Morrison talked about the master narrative. And so it's like there's a certain narrative, a dominant narrative in society that's been created to really reify and uplift only certain types of bodies and certain types of people. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole series of work that we have to do to unpack that for ourselves and also to see all of our humanities. And so I think we can be free. We can understand that all of us belong. And I think in that space, we can transform the world.
0: Mikhail is one of those people who are indeed transforming the world. He said that when taking his photographs, he aims to create a space of freedom between himself and the models, and for the eventual viewers of the images to both see and feel that freedom. His art is doing just that, right at the moment when we most need it. His images challenge old narratives about both Black and LGBTQ bodies, making clear their power, their dignity, and their inherent beauty. Mikhail mentioned the power of being here in the present. He is a man who is absolutely powerfully present in our world, creating images that inspire wonder, open-heartedness, and respect. We are lucky to have Mikhail and his art in our lives right now at this moment in our history.